And so it's very easy to dismiss the importance of making choices that are 1% better on a given day or to dismiss the consequences of making choices that are 1% worse. And it's only after your habits have compounded for two or five or 10 years that it becomes very apparent the importance of those daily choices. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I have with me author and friend James Clear. Now, James writes on things like habits and decisions and generally how to live better lives, all things that are super important in our lives, but also to our health. His work has been covered by the New York Times and Time Magazine, CBS This Morning, and many other media outlets. And James has a new book out called Atomic Habits. So we are going to talk about that today. Now, I've been following his work and appreciating his writing for years now. And James, let me pay you a compliment here. I think you do a superb job taking complex topics and telling a story that makes these potentially life-improving ideas really resonate with a person. And there's so many good ideas that are out there in the world that we can benefit from. And yet we can easily miss those ideas first by not being exposed to them. But second, if idea just isn't delivered in a way that hits home, where you can put yourself into the shoes of somebody else and experience that as though you've experienced it yourself. And that I think can really help people adopt these changes and adopt these good ideas. So thank you for your writing and welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much. That's very nice of you to say. And yeah, I'm excited to be talking to you again. Let's start from the beginning. You started writing when in your newsletter? Well, I've been an entrepreneur for eight years, but I launched jamesclear.com about six years ago in November of 2012. So the first article went up there November 12th, 2012, and I decided I was just going to write a new article every Monday and Thursday. And I followed that twice a week writing habit for the next three years. And that was really the thing that led to the growth of my newsletter and my site and also was the avenue through which I developed some expertise around the topics of habits and behavior change and performance improvement. I remember early on was talking to a friend and I mean, I'm just a guy who am I to write about this? And he was like, well, the way you become an expert is by writing about it every week. And so in a sense, I went to school every week or went to class by researching and writing these articles and putting them out to the world and getting some feedback and then adjusting and improving from there. And I'm still continuing that process today. Really one of the best ways to learn is to teach. Probably. I mean, it might be the best way. I understand the concepts well now because I force myself to explain them simply to the audience. And so I need to fully grok what I'm wrestling with and distill it down to its essence in order to write about it clearly. I've discovered that in many ways, I don't really know what I think about something until I write about it. If you were to just ask me about a topic right now that I haven't written about, what I would do when I respond is I would sort of talk through my feelings. I would be talking out what my gut reaction is or what my initial feeling is on the topic. And so when I go through a first draft of an article, that's basically what I'm doing. But then I go back to the beginning and refine it again and again and again. And many of the articles I've written, I've read through them 20 or 30 or 50 times. And so it's only through that process of kind of endless revision that I really find out what I actually think about something and kind of clarify my thoughts. I mean, you could never do that in conversation, just say the same sentence 30 times, but adjust it slightly. So in that sense, writing is very instructive for me. It's effective process for learning. The fourth time I give a talk is usually a lot better than the first, just because mm. I've heard myself say something out loud multiple times now, and I figure out some way to tweak it that makes me happier about how I'm communicating, because I've learned as by doing. And the other idea is that I listen to my own podcast more than anyone that's out there. That sounds really self-indulgent, but 
it's that repetition of going over an idea over and over again to think about it more deeply and think about it a second and third and fourth time to get a deeper level of understanding by repeatedly dedicating to that one concept. I get more out of that than going faster and covering more. It's like a habit a little bit in the sense that it's repetition, but anything you want to know or master well, you're not just going to do it once, right? You wouldn't play one chess game and be like, oh, I'm a grandmaster now. So writing and learning, I think is similar. You need that repetition to instill the idea or the skill or the practice. What is your process for writing an article? I have a couple different stages that things go through. So the first one is, let's say we're talking here and you mentioned some interesting idea during the conversation or it sparked something for me. So once we get done, I'll dump that into an Evernote file. And so I do most of my writing or early writing in Evernote. And that is just a central holding ground for all the ideas that come across. So it might be something you mentioned in conversation or a little snippet from a book I read or something that I listen to on a podcast or whatever. And it can be anything. It could be a title. It could be maybe just a sentence. Sometimes I'll riff for a while and it's maybe a couple paragraphs. But all those first thoughts just go there and are in that central holding ground. And there's a lot now. There's like maybe, I don't know, 600 or 800. Like there are a lot of ideas in there at this point. And then when I sit down to write, I'll open up that notebook and go through and I'll start to look for ones that are similar. Let's say I have five notes in there that are about something related to sleep. Well, maybe I'll start to pull those and put them into one file. That's just my thoughts on sleep. And that'll start to take a little bit more of a shape. And I'll see maybe what some holes are and I'll go off and do a little more reading or I'll start to basically block it into like these larger chunks. I'm not really worried about the sentences yet. I'm okay, this will be a section on this idea and here's the next section that's on this idea. I move those chunks around a little bit. And then once the article starts to get a general form, I'll move it over to WordPress, which is what I run my website on. And that's the point where the real work begins. I don't really consider myself to be a very good writer. I think I'm a much better editor. And so at that point, once I've got this generally formed article, I'll start at the top and I'll read the first sentence. And if that sounds good, I'll read the second. And if that sounds good, I'll read the third. And at some point I get to a sentence that doesn't sound good or isn't working quite well. And I'll edit that. And then as soon as that's fixed, I'll go back to the top and start all again. And so what ends up happening is by the time the article's finished, I've read it. I mean, it really might not be an exaggeration to say I've read it 50 or 100 times. And so I've gone through it so much that what I want to see is not just that the sentences are reading well, but the whole thing is working together. There's this natural flow. And so then at some point after doing all that, I get to the final sentence and it's done. Typically, that process ends in me cutting a lot. The most recent article I put up, I think it finished at 2,000 words or 2,200 or somewhere around there. And when I put it into WordPress, it was at 6,000. And that's pretty typical for me. Cut about half or so of what I start with. And it'd be nice to be more economical and not waste words, but that's just how it goes, I guess. Have there been parts of your process that have become more efficient over doing this now for eight years? Well, one big thing was that switch to having the central holding ground for all the ideas. I used to have stuff just like disparately saved all over. I'd have a note on my phone or I would keep separate notes on the books I was reading or I we use Trello for our project management. I have notes in there. And I realized I was just basically losing a bunch of ideas because I would put it somewhere and then never come back to it. So having one central place was a big fix. The second thing is the realization that I want the scientific ideas to be easy to understand, to be simple, actionable, and practical. But I also want to have a story that brings it to life. I want something that can hook readers in or that they have a reason to remember. If I give a talk and I mention a research study, nobody remembers the study, but everybody remembers the story before it. And so I realized that stories were a big part of my writing. 
And so what I have now is usually I'll have either a story or I'll have a main point that I want to make, but I don't have both. And so there are a lot of articles that are kind of sitting there waiting for me that are in need of a story that can bring them to life. And so I can remember one in particular, it was about strength training, the article was, and I needed a story that could make this main point I was trying to get across. And I was reading an article in the New York Times, and they mentioned this Greek I think he actually lived, Milo of Croton, but he kind of almost is this mythological character. He's this famous Greek wrestler. And anyway, it was just one sentence they mentioned, but it was enough that I was like, huh, I need to find out more about that guy. That was interesting. So I researched him a little bit, just threw his name in Google. And as soon as I read his story, I was like, yes, this is what I need. And so that was the story for the strength training article that I had been sitting on for like a year. And I dumped the story in, kicked it off with that. And then the article was written like a week later. So a lot of the time I'm looking for that matching between story and study and the main point. And I didn't know that for the first year or two. I was just writing articles and occasionally I'd have a story in there and those would invariably be the ones that people liked more. But now that I've honed in on that a little bit, I'm more careful or more cognizant of that connection. I I look for that type of stuff more. My process is actually quite similar in writing. I will collect a lot of ideas, then go through a process of organizing them, try to figure out a main point to surface in the process of talking about some concepts. Because if you try to talk about too many, you could not make any point at all. And I actually have an analogy that one book out there, Good Calories, Bad Calories by Gary Taubes, it's 600 pages on one point, carbs are bad. (laughs) You could argue that there are more scientifically credible books that try to make 13 points per chapter. And they have had less of an impact on people's behavior because they're trying to cover too much one go. So I think that's very true. I've been thinking about that a little bit more now that I've finished this book, my first full length book about like what makes a book good, what makes a book bad, like what should I improve for next time? And that idea of staying focused on one central point, it makes a lot of sense to me for the articles I write. You know, they're about 2000 words long usually, and I can kind of see the idea from end to end. You know, here's the story that kicks it off. This is the main point I'm trying to make. And here's the practical takeaway. I think it's really challenging to select an idea that is both easy to understand in a single sentence like that, but also worthy of two or 300 pages. Because there are a lot of books, I mean, business books are the most obvious example of this, but they should be a 20-page report or white paper, not a 200-page book. But if you can find the right one, four-hour work week is a good example. I can understand that in a single sentence. I get to retire early. I don't have to work that much. I can have a full-time career on four hours a week. But then there are a lot of questions that immediately come from that. Okay, how do I actually do that? What does that look like? That idea is you can understand it immediately, but you also kind of need 300 pages to explain how someone does that. And so I think good books have a balance of that where it's a easily digestible, compelling idea, but also worthy of good amount of explanation. So let's talk about habits a little bit. This is a topic that most people are familiar with, but why have you focused on habits? And let's talk about what they are generally. Okay, so I'll start with the definition. Broadly speaking, a habit is a behavior that has been repeated enough times to be more or less automatic. You can think of them sort of like mental shortcuts and they are mental solutions that we use for the problems we face repeatedly in life. So as you go throughout life, you face a variety of problems. Some of them are big, some of them are small, like you need to tie your shoe. And the more that you face that problem every morning, you need to tie your shoe, the more your brain automates a solution that it comes across that seems to be effective at solving that problem. And if you repeat that enough times, pretty soon you can tie your shoes while you're having a conversation or thinking about what you need to do that day or what you're going to make for breakfast or whatever. And this is one of the values of habits is that when you can solve a problem on auto 
autopilot, you free up your cognitive attention to direct it towards other problems or towards other areas of life. So you effectively remove one more bottleneck from your brain and you can direct your conscious attention elsewhere. I think that's a reasonable definition of what a habit is. Why do I write about it? Why is it important? Well, first of all, this is a process that's just happening automatically. You don't need to think about it. Your body is going to be doing this day in and day out regardless. And so if you're going to be building habits anyway, it makes sense to understand how the process works. The second thing is that habits are like a double-edged sword. They can either compound for you or against you. And so it makes a lot of sense to learn how to design them to your liking so that you can avoid the dangerous half of the blade. Early in the book, I think in chapter one, I mentioned that habits are like the compound interest of self-improvement. So the same way that you know money can multiply through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them over time. And the challenge of this is that it's really easy to dismiss on any given day. What really is the difference between studying Chinese for 20 minutes tonight or not studying it? You don't know the language either way. Or what is the difference between eating a salad and chicken for lunch or eating a burger and fries? On any given day, your body looks basically the same. The scale doesn't really change. And so it's very easy to dismiss the importance of making choices that are 1% better on a given day or to dismiss the consequences of making choices that are 1% worse. And it's only after your habits have compounded for two or five or 10 years that it becomes very apparent the importance of those daily choices. And so that was something I was trying to get across in the book. And then once you accept that habits are these really important processes that kind of solve the problems we face every day, then we need a framework for actually changing them. And that's, of course, what the bulk of the book is about. So if you have an intellectual understanding of the process itself and an understanding of the impact that they can have in your life for both positive and negative, then you can take charge of these to the degree where you can implement better habits and know, yeah, I might not necessarily have the immediate feedback, but over time, the compounding interest of designing these right is going to make my life better. I think that's broadly right. So I mentioned this idea that like habits are the solutions to the problems you face over and over again. Let's say you come home from work each day and you feel stressed and exhausted. There are actually a variety of ways to solve that problem, so to speak. You know, like one person might play video games for an hour and another person might smoke a cigarette and a third person might go for a run for 20 minutes. And they're all plausible solutions to the problem of feeling stressed and exhausted. And so what you realize is that in many cases, maybe you turn around, you're 20 years old or 25 or 30, and the original habits that you built, the habits that are filling up your life now, are not necessarily the optimal habits for the problems that you face over and over again. And once you realize that, then it becomes your responsibility to try to design a more optimal solution or a more effective solution to those problems. And so I think that understanding how habits compound and the role that they play as these solutions to recurring problems maybe makes that a little bit more clear and possibly inspires us to, to work on our habits even though we often overlook them. Do you personally do a habit review? So in the book, I talk about this thing called a habit scorecard. And I think that there are two ways to do this. So first is a habit scorecard is like an inventory of what your habits are. So you just start at the beginning of your day and you write down pretty much in as much detail as you can muster what habits you're performing. So I wake up, I turn off my alarm, I check Instagram, I get out of bed, I make the bed, I take a shower, I brush my teeth, on and on and on. And then you grade that habit. You can either give it up 
plus sign if it's a positive habit or a good habit, a negative sign if you think it's a negative habit, or like an equal sign if it's just neutral. But the point of that inventory is not to feel good or bad about yourself or to judge yourself. It's just to kind of get a lay of the land, almost like you're observing somebody else. Oh, okay, I check Instagram before I get out of bed each morning. Should I actually do that? No, probably not. It's probably a negative habit. But you're just trying to become aware that you do that. And once you have that level of awareness, then you actually have a chance to maybe design it to some meaningful degree. If you're not aware of it, it's really hard to design something carefully. So that's the first thing. And I'll add a little caveat to that about good and bad habits, because sometimes people are, well, if it's a bad habit, why do I do it? That doesn't make any sense. And all habits serve you in some way. So smoking a cigarette might be bad in the long run, but it serves you by reducing stress or making you feel like you're part of the social group or a variety of other things that it could provide. So the way that I like to think about that is that habits produce multiple outcomes across time. Pretty much any behavior produces multiple outcomes across time. So for bad habits, it's often the case that the initial outcome is favorable. So for example, eating a donut each day. Eating a donut right now is tasty and sugary and sweet and you might find it enjoyable. So the immediate outcome is favorable. But the ultimate outcome that if you repeat this habit, you're going to gain weight in a month or a year or whatever is unfavorable. For good habits, it's often the reverse. The immediate outcome of going to the gym is effortful. You sweat. It takes some sacrifice. It's hard work. Your body is basically the same. The scale doesn't really change. You're putting up basically the same weight. But the ultimate outcome, if you repeat the habit, is that you're stronger and fitter in a month or a year. So first of all, that's a good way to distinguish what is a bad habit and what is a good habit, is what is the ultimate outcome of the behavior. And secondly, a lot of the challenge of building good habits and breaking bad ones is about figuring out ways to take the long-term consequences of your bad habits and pull them into the immediate moment so you feel a little bit of the pain right now, and taking the long-term rewards of your good habits and pulling those into the immediate moment so that it's pleasurable and satisfying and you have a reason to repeat it right now rather than just trying to delay gratification. And we can talk more about that later, but that's basically the first way that I do that is this habit scorecard. And then I also have a longer-term tracking or awareness exercise where I do like an annual review at the end of each year. I think that's a great idea. I don't know if you're a basketball fan, but Joel Embiid yeah. is saying is trust the process, which is really what you're talking about. If, if you can't see that in the moment benefit, but you know it will get you to a place you want to go, then you can say, ah, this process is going to help me. And that belief itself can be really good to continue something that doesn't have like that instantaneous reward. Well, the ultimate form of immediate reinforcement is the reinforcement of your desired identity. So if you want to be, say, the type of person who doesn't miss workouts, well, as soon as you go to the gym and do one rep, you're the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And so you can feel satisfied right then in the moment, even if you're waiting for the long-term rewards of a lighter number on the scale or a stronger bench press or something like that to accumulate in the background. So it's easier to trust the process when you identify with the process, I guess is my point. How do you make something that has a longer-term outcome, how do you support that by making that in-the-moment process more rewarding? Yeah, so this is a crucial question. In the book, I refer to this as the cardinal rule of behavior change, which is that behaviors that are immediately rewarded get repeated, and behaviors that are immediately punished get avoided. And it's really the speed, the immediacy of the reward or consequence that makes a big difference here. Because if you think about it, if you perform an action and it feels good right away, then it's kind of like a positive signal to your brain that says, hey, this was enjoyable, you should repeat this again next time. Whereas if you have to either wait for a positive signal, it doesn't come until weeks or months later, that's kind of like too long and your brain has forgotten the feedback loop and it's not tight 
tight enough to close that or to perform that process of learning. Or if it's unrewarding, if it's unsatisfying, then why would I do this again in the future? It didn't feel good in the moment. So products and businesses are an interesting example of this. So a few stories, one of them from many years ago. So chewing gum has been around for a long time. It was around maybe even for hundreds or thousands of years, but certainly all throughout the early 1800s. But it was mostly this like bland resin. It was kind of chewy, but it wasn't really tasty. And then Wrigley launched in the late 1800s and they came out with Juicy Fruit and Spearmint and Double Mint. And it was the first time that gum had this satisfying or enjoyable flavor. And so suddenly you had the same habit of chewing gum, but there was this immediate benefit associated with it. It tasted good as soon as you did it. And Wrigley took off and chewing gum exploded as a habit and there became the largest chewing gum company in the world. And it was largely because they added this immediate satisfaction to the product. Interestingly, there are still many modern examples of this. So BMW and Ford have recently started coming up with methods for if you press the accelerator in the car, BMW will actually, they have a system that will pipe in additional engine growl or noise through the stereo speakers so that it's more satisfying to press on the gas. It feels more like a race car in the moment. And that is largely built just to make it more satisfying, more enjoyable to drive the car. And so those bits of like immediate feedback Video games are the ultimate example of this. There are so many little pieces of immediate feedback in video games that are signals of progress, signals of satisfaction or enjoyment. Even you see the score going up in the corner of the screen, picking up power-ups or coins or rubies and having like a little bit of music play each time you come across them. Even little things like the pitter-patter of the character's feet running on the ground is immediate feedback and a signal that, hey, you're making progress, you're moving through this scene or this level. So video games are masterful at that. Now, of course, in the physical world, it's not always possible to have some kind of immediate satisfaction like that that increases the enjoyment of the behavior and leads to a greater likelihood that you'll perform it in the future. But there are a couple other ways around it. For example, there are a variety of habits that I would call habits of avoidance. And so these are things like don't drink alcohol for 30 days or don't buy stuff on Amazon or don't go eat out at restaurants. And it's really hard to be satisfied with those kind of habits because all you're really doing is just not doing something. How am I supposed to be satisfied not buying something on Amazon? I'm just resisting temptation. And so you can flip this on its head and add a little bit of that immediate satisfaction to the process. I had one reader, he and his, he and his wife wanted to eat out less and wanted to eat at restaurants less often and cook for themselves more. But again, same kind of thing. I guess we're not going to go to the restaurant tonight. That's just kind of feels like a sacrifice. So what they did was they opened up a bank account, a savings account, and they labeled it trip to Europe. And then every time they didn't eat out at a restaurant and cooked at home instead, they moved $50 over to the account. And then at the end of the year, they put the money toward the trip or whatever. But even if they were not going to out to eat, they still got the immediate satisfaction of seeing the bank account grow or seeing that trip to Europe, you know, saving toward that. And it's a small thing, but stuff like that can be meaningful in the moment because it adds at least just like a little bit of a reason to do it to feel good about it. And habit tracking is another example of this. Putting an X on a calendar is a small thing, but if every time you finish a workout, you throw a little X on there, that feels good in the moment. It's a small positive emotional signal. And that's really the main point of all this is that positive emotions cultivate habits and negative emotions destroy them. 
and you really want the ending of any habit or behavior to feel successful, to feel positive, so that you have a reason to repeat it again in the future. This feels to be a fundamental component of habits, which is the sense of reward, which can be subtle and subconscious, but present and real to perceptible. And if you are trying to then modify some habit like going out and spending money on dining out, suppressing that is hard. It just feels like a bummer. Another way to think of this, in the book, I lay out this four-step framework for building habits or understanding or thinking about habits. And one of the things that's a little different in my framework than some of the others that people may have come across is that every behavior is preceded by a prediction, which I would call a craving or some kind of interpretation of the cue or of your current state of the circumstance. And one of the roles of the outcome of your habits is to resolve the craving that you're feeling. And if you don't resolve that craving, you just have to sit with it. And that can be like a very unsatisfying experience. And so by having a reward that provides some immediate satisfaction in the moment, resolve the craving and satisfy or complete that loop. You told a great story about this 1% improvement. You mentioned that earlier about British cyclists. I'd love for you to share it here. Yeah, for many years, British cycling was very mediocre, really almost for like 100 years. This is like in the early 2000s. They had never won a Tour de France. The race had been around for like 100 years. They won a single gold medal, and it was way back in like 1908 or something. And so they hired this guy named Dave Brailsford to try to change this, you know, to try to reverse this process. And Brailsford believed in this concept that he called the aggregation of marginal gains. And the way that he described it was the 1% improvement in nearly everything that you do. And so they looked at all these different areas related to cycling, and they just tried to get like 1% better in each one. And they did a bunch of things in the beginning that you would expect a professional cycling team to do. Like they put slightly lighter tires on the bike, or they had a more ergonomic seat. They asked their riders to wear these electrically heated overshorts that kept their muscle temperature ideal and warm while they were training. They had each rider wear a biofeedback sensor so they could see how they responded to training and adjust their program appropriately. But then they did a bunch of things that you wouldn't expect a cycling team to do. They hired a surgeon to teach each rider how to wash their hands so that they would reduce the risk of catching a cold or getting sick. They split tested different types of massage gels to see which one led to the best form of muscle recovery. They painted the inside of the team truck white so that they could see these little bits of dust that might get into the gears of the bikes while they were traveling to different races. And they even figured out the type of pillow that led to the best night's sleep for each rider and then brought that on the road with them to hotels when they were going into a big championship or something. So anyway, Brailsford said, if we can actually do this, right, if we can make all these little 1% changes, I think we could win a Tour de France within five years. And he ended up being wrong. They won the Tour de France in three years, and then they repeated again the next year with a different rider. And they've continued their success now, and they just won the last one. It's, it's something crazy. They've won like five out of the last six. Um, but it really was at the Olympics in London in 2012 that this like fully came to fruition. They won 60% of the gold medals available. And then in Rio in 2016, they won 60% of the gold medals again. And that was across dozens of different riders. And so the point here is that we often think about these little 1% changes as like, oh, that's just an optimization, right? That's like a little cherry on top of our performance. But if you commit to that type of continuous improvement, that mindset of the aggregation of marginal gains as a lifestyle, then it can end up becoming something much more over the long run. And this is, again, how we think about, like, can think about the effects of our habits as these small 1% choices, something slightly better, slightly worse. And when repeated day in and day out for years, 
you end up with a very different result. In a sense, time magnifies whatever you feed it. If you have good habits, time is your ally. And if you have bad habits, time becomes your enemy. And what you really want is to make sure you're inserting the right things into the engine of that beast and letting it kind of get to work for you and let time become a leverage point in your favor rather than to your detriment. It is probably one of the most interesting, compelling, and important concepts that you speak to. If you think about health, which is largely what we cover on the show, there is a tendency in society to seek the silver bullet, the thing that's going to explain everything and make you better. And I think it comes from a time where we invented antibiotics and vaccines that had such a large magnitude on lifespan, 70% increase in the century, that we almost got in the mental habit of thinking that we just needed to find that one thing that was going to then help solve all the problems. You might have a very small impact from, let's say, modifying your light environment in the evening, it's not going to explain everything. But when you compound that with a lot of other little changes across your entire day and night, then that leads to the compounded interest of a more healthy lifestyle over time. It's a great concept to embed in your mindset for how to be healthy. So yeah, thank you for sharing that story. We talked about doing this habit review, having some oversight into understanding what your habits are, reviewing them and thinking about ways to make positive change. We talked about also the ability to then understand what is driving the habit process so that you can take control of it in certain areas where you might find yourself doing something that's not as positive, but you can change it into something that's more positive and how it's going to have a compounding interest over time. What are some other big ideas that come out in the book you can share with us today, fundamental to the importance of this subject? Sure. So we can talk about two. So one of them is in the environment and we can talk about the physical environment. And then the second one is the social environment. So physical environment, and this is particularly easy to understand with like food. Many of your habits are a response to the physical cues that you are surrounded by day in and day out. So a lot of people will think, oh, I've watched too much TV. But if you walk into pretty much any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? It's like that room is designed to get you to watch television. So there are a variety of steps that you could take here, right? You could turn a chair away from the TV. You could take the remote control and put it inside a coffee table. You could take the television and put it in a cabinet or wall unit so that it's behind doors and you don't see as much. But that general principle of reducing exposure can be a very effective way to curb a habit or in some cases have it fade away entirely. If you don't want to spend as much money on electronics, well, stop following all the tech review blogs and the latest YouTubers who are unboxing tech gear and stuff. You're constantly being triggered in that type of situation. You have to overcome that exposure all the time, which is a challenging thing to ask anybody to do. Same way with if you want to stick to a new diet or eat less, don't follow a bunch of food blogs on Instagram. You're constantly being Prompted. So exposure is a key part of the physical environment, but thankfully that can work for you just as well as against you. So when I wanted to build a habit of flossing, I realized that one of the issues was that the floss was hidden away in a drawer in the bathroom and I just wouldn't see it a lot. It wasn't obvious. And so I bought some of those pre-made flossers and put them in a little bowl and placed it right next to my toothbrush. So now I brush my teeth, put the toothbrush down, pick a flosser up. And that was pretty much all I needed to do to build that habit. I've been doing it for years now and it's basically just because I changed the environment and made that more obvious. The same thing was true for food. For many years, well, maybe not years, but it definitely annoyed me for a few months. My wife and I would go to the store and buy fruit. We'd buy like apples or bananas or something and keep them in the crisper in the bottom of the fridge. And I just wouldn't remember they were there because they were tucked down there like out of sight. And they would sit there for like two weeks and go bad. And then I'd get annoyed every time I'm throwing these apples out, just wasting money and wasting food. 
so what I ended up doing was buying a display bowl and placing the fruit right in the middle of the counter. And now I eat it in three days. It's all gone. I've noticed something similar with alcohol. If I get beer and place it in the fridge, either in the door or at the front of a shelf so that it's very obvious and I can see it as soon as I open it, I'll drink one each night just because it's there. But if I buy a six pack and I put it in the back of the fridge and tuck it under the shelf so that it's all the way at the back and I can't really see it when the door is open, then it'll sit there for a month or two months. I won't even remember that it's there. And it raises an interesting question about a lot of our habits, which is, do you really want it or were you just doing it because it was obvious and easy? And I think that that's true for not just food habits, but social media is another good example or your phones. Now I try to keep my phone in another room until lunch each day so that I get at least like three or four hours in the morning where I don't have my phone on me. And the numbers keep going up every year. I think the average adult now checks their phone over 150 times a day, but we just keep getting more and more addicted to it. And if I have my phone on me, I'll probably look at it every three or five minutes or something. But what's fascinating is that when I keep it in another room, when I keep it outside of my office, I just have to walk up the stairs and go to a different room to get it. But even though it's only 45 seconds away, I'll never go get it in the morning. If I had it, I would check it all the time, but it was never worth 45 seconds of work. So anyway, that basic principle can be applied for good or bad habits. You basically just want to increase the number of steps between you and the bad habit and reduce the number of steps between you and the good habit. I'll give you an example of how I've done this specifically. I was checking social media more than I wanted to. I was doing it in those moments where I wasn't thinking. It would just probably pull it up and I'd pull up Instagram and Facebook. So I took the apps off my phone. And now if I want to actually use it, I've got to type it into the browser. So it's more friction, takes more time. The second thing that I did is I'll batch it. So I'll say, all right, I'm just going to do this on Sundays or Saturdays. So I've compartmentalized my usage to just the weekend and I'll just go and check in. And and now I'll casually check it on the weekends, maybe spend five or 10 minutes on it and I'm done. Instead of saying I can't use Facebook or social media altogether, I'm now using it to a degree that I'm more comfortable with. So that has powerful illustration of exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that's a great example. While I was writing the book, I needed to focus. And so I did like the most extreme version of this, which is every Monday, my assistant would log me out of Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and mm-hmm. reset the passwords. Mm-hmm. And then I would work all week. And then on Friday, she would give me the passwords and I could log in over the weekend and use them. And then on Monday, we would do it all over again. Yeah. <laughs> and so it ended up working really well. And what's fascinating is how quickly you realize, I really don't need this. But yeah, so that principle can work both for the physical environment and the digital environment. And I think it can be a really effective way to change your habits. And then the second one that I mentioned is social environment, which we can talk about more if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. I'll mention one other thing too about placing the things that you want to be engaging with in your environment so they are more visible than the things you do not want to be using. I noticed one other thing about this behavior. I put my weights out or gym equipment so I can see it. But if something sits in the same place long enough and you don't use it, you will look past it without noticing it. I've done is I'll then keep it visible, but I'll move things around. And then that makes me notice it more and use it more. Yeah. There's something that happens over the course of a habit being built where the cue starts to be not a specific thing, but the entire context around it. So you become comfortable with the entire room. So imagine if you walked into your kitchen, you don't really think about the kitchen as being the cue, that whole context is being the cue for like making your morning cup of coffee. But if something was out of place when you walked in in the morning, if 
there was, it doesn't even have to be that big of a thing. If there was just, say you went to a party and there was some little sculpture or something you were given, it's like the size of a baseball and it was sitting on the counter, you would pick up on it when you walk in because you would implicitly know the context is different for some reason. So by moving things around, that's a good way to capture your attention again. But there's also a good lesson here for building new habits, which is that as habits become built and as you develop those associations with the overall context, you implicitly have these connections that if you're trying to build a new habit, you have to overpower. So one way to think about your physical environment, whether it's the place you live or the kitchen you cook in or the desk you work at, is not as being filled with objects, but as being filled with relationships. For one person, the couch in their living room might be a place where they have a relationship of reading every night for an hour. For another person, it might be the association is that they sit on the couch and watch a TV show and eat a bowl of ice cream. And it's the same object, it's just the relationship is different. And so if you want to build a new habit, it's often more effective to go to a new place where you don't have those associations built, where you're not trying to overpower the current stimuli. If you want to build a journaling habit, maybe go to a coffee shop that's close to your work, but you don't normally go to. And that becomes the place where you journal. Or if you want to build like a reading habit, buy a new chair and put it in the corner. And that becomes the chair that you read in. You don't do anything else there. And what you're essentially trying to do is find something that you don't already have an association tied to. And then make that the place where this new habit happens. That's fascinating. I'm going to try that. In one thing we recently started to do with Human OS is we have something called the daily performula and the ideas we take your daily recipes and workouts and we email them to you in the morning. People may or may not do those, but the idea of also triggering the thought process, sort of like our built environment of, ah, this is what healthy looks like. Here are some ideas to be healthy. You're starting your day as much as you checking your email and you're getting those thoughts into your mind to sort of then affect how you might behave later that afternoon. It might affect you in a lot of different ways that you would be think about even if you don't use those workouts or those recipes on that given day yeah yeah that makes sense So talk a little bit more about the social habits as well. So this makes sense to us once we hear it explained a little bit. We all belong to multiple tribes. Some of the tribes are big, what it means to be American or Australian or French or German or Christian or Buddhist or atheist or whatever. And some of the tribes are small, like what it means to be a neighbor on your local street or a member of your local CrossFit gym or, you know, a student at your school. But large and small, all of these tribes have a set of shared expectations that are part of what it means to be that group. And so the result is society and the tribes that we are part of, it leans heavily on our behavior. Just take a couple basic habits that nobody really thinks about. Like if you walk onto an elevator, you turn around to face the front. Or if you have a job interview, you wear a suit and a tie or a dress or something nice. Now, there's no reason it has to be that way. You could face the back of the elevator. You could wear a bathing suit to a job interview. But we don't because it violates the shared expectations of the group. And so many of our habits are a result of those shared expectations. Humans are innately tribal creatures. Our ancestors grew up in tribes, lived in tribes, and perhaps even more importantly, to be cast out from the tribe was not just like a bad thing, it was often a death sentence. And so if you didn't have some kind of tribal affiliation, some type of desire to belong, to the group, then you probably wouldn't pass down your genes. And so one of the net effects of that, one of the results of that is that we all are internally wired with this deep sense to belong. And so when habits are aligned with the shared expectations of the group, when they help you belong, 
they're very attractive. When they go against the grain of the shared expectations of the group, they're very unattractive. So it becomes crucial to make sure that you join groups where the desired behavior is the normal behavior, or the habit that you want to build is the thing that's normal for that group. And the thing that I don't hear people talk about a lot with this that I think is crucial for getting it to stick is that what makes you want to go along with the group is friendship, it's belonging. And so what you need is not just to like hang around people who have your habits. What you need is to develop relationships with them, friendships with them, to belong with them. And a good way to do that is to often have a different area where you have a mutual interest or a shared overlap. So the example that I like to give is from my friend, Steve Cam. He runs this site called Nerd Fitness. And the mm -hmm. site is about getting in shape. It's about going to the gym and getting fit, but it's specifically written and organized and branded for nerds, people who identify as liking Star Wars or Spider-Man and Batman or Legos or computer programming or whatever the millions of other ways that nerd could identify. But you can imagine that if you're out of shape and trying to get in better shape, that can be an intimidating thing sometimes. You feel out of place at the gym or you feel maybe this isn't for me. But if you can connect with other people in the group over your mutual love of Star Wars, for example, well, now you have friends there and you have a reason to pick up the other habits that they're performing. It's like, oh, well, you know, we're not that different. We have the shared interest and they work out four days a week. Maybe I can do that too. And so what really gets habits to stick in the long run is belonging to the tribe, to belong to a group. And I think that changing your habits often requires you to change your tribe because it's hard to go against the grain of the group. And that is a really challenging thing if the option is either I get to stay with this group and have bad habits or have the habits I don't want, or I get to build the habits I want, but I have to be alone. If the choice is between being right on your own or being wrong with the crowd, we often choose to be wrong with the crowd. And so it really helps if you have another place to go, another tribe to join as you make those transitions, because then at least you don't have to be alone. Maybe you're still building a habit that's a little uncomfortable for you, or maybe you haven't quite figured it out yet, but you don't have to be on your own at the same time. And that I think can help make the process of transition or behavior change easier. And historically, that has been locationally determined. We talk oftentimes about the negative aspects of online behavior, but in this sense, you could more easily find a community that resonates with you that might not have a large local demographic. And that could be one of the good things about online. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. We're not as geographically bound as we were before. I was just talking to an entrepreneur about VR and AR and what that can mean. If you could throw a headset on and feel like you're in the same room with people who are working on the same goals or have the same kind of projects, that's a different level of power than joining a Facebook group, for example, which nothing wrong with that. But we all know that being in a Facebook group doesn't feel like the same thing as being in a room with your friends. And so, so the more that you can replicate that in-person feel with through and get it anywhere geographically and connect with people who have the same interests as you across the world, the more real that becomes, the more powerful some of those social behavior change platforms could be. And the more we need habit review instead of just getting intoxicated by any sort of community, one that says, is this serving me well? Am I being a good social citizen? Am I going to benefit? Is the accrual of my repetitive investment in this group going to lead to a better me in some way? 
I think that's a crucial point that you're bringing up. I've kind of broadly put habits into two categories. So the first category are habits that once you build them, you don't really need to think about them anymore. They're just life skills or like tying your shoes or brushing your teeth or unplugging the toaster after each use or something like that. I don't need a process of continuous improvement for tying my shoes. Like once it's built, it's good enough. But then there's another category of habits that maybe you really do care about continuously improving. So for me, it's things like weightlifting and writing and photography. And for those those social groups make more sense. And what really becomes crucial for endlessly refining those areas is having a process of reflection and review. And I think that that's the thing that distinguishes that second group from the first one is that these are the habits that even as you build them, you need to come back and be aware of them occasionally to revisit them because you want to use the formation of each habit as kind of like a stepping stone to the next level of performance and continue to reassess, is this still serving me? Is this working well? rather than build it once and let it ride. It's a continual process. And the more that you understand these factors that do shape how you live, the more you can take control of them and keep designing your life so that the person you are now, which is different than 10 years ago, is still operating effective and kind manner to yourself and others. This is great work, James. I really appreciate you coming on to this show to talk about it. So many of my shows are talking about the inner workings of circadian genes in Drosophila. And yet I consider this discussion as important, more so than just about everything else that we have discussed, because this is where the rubber meets the road in a lot of ways. Can you implement good ideas? Do you know the mechanics of taking some concept and making it a reality in your life? So I want to encourage everybody to go out and buy James's book, Atomic Habits, You can find it everywhere. And James, thank you for all your work. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. Great to chat with you. And the link for the book is atomichabits.com. So obviously you can check it out there. I also have a couple extra things there. There's a secret chapter on the biology of bad behavior, which might be particularly interesting for your audience, uh, given how scientifically minded they are. And then there's some chapter by chapter audio commentary for me on why I wrote each chapter and the research and my thinking behind it. And then a variety of workbooks and templates and things for implementing some of the ideas. All that's in atomichabits.com. So thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.